Welcome to the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast series, which can be heard on VHHA.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get podcasts. We're a member of the Virginia Audio Collective and the Family Podcast Network. And we're on the radio each Saturday at noon and Sunday at 10 a.m. on 100.5 FM, 92.7 FM, 107.7 FM, and 8.20 a.m. across Central Virginia and Wednesdays at 1 p.m. on 93.9 FM in Richmond. Please send any questions, comments, or feedback to pcfpodcast.vhha.com. That's pcfpodcast.vhha.com. I'm Selena Lohr with the VHHA team, and today we're excited to be joined by Dr. Jacqueline Hodges, a research fellow at the University of Virginia's Division of Infectious Disease and Internal Health, for a conversation about the promising results of research she and colleagues have done on leveraging technology to support treatment of patients with opioid use disorder, and more. With that, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Hodges. Thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. To get things rolling, let's introduce you a bit more to our listeners. As I understand it, you are a second-year fellow in the Division of Infectious Diseases and International Health. It's always fascinating to me to hear the different pathways people take to find their vocation. If you would, tell us about your journey to the work you do now, perhaps what sparked your interest in this field, and how much busier work has been since the pandemic arrived. Yeah, absolutely. As you said, I'm at UVA finishing up my second year of fellowship. So I originally am from Northern Virginia, and I really wanted to get back to this community. And I went to UVA for my undergraduate degree, which was, you know, primarily in biochemistry. And I was really interested in science and understanding the human body. But I also became increasingly interested in kind of understanding the whole patient and really what determines health outside of their biology and, you know, really encountering a lot of stories, you know, through volunteer work and through some of my extracurricular activities that were geared a little bit more towards international health and global health, um, getting a sense that there are a lot of barriers to all these ideal treatments that are proposed through research and through understanding science that we really grapple with in the real world and really understanding those barriers and how they impact health became really kind of my focus. And so I ended up pursuing a degree in public health along with my MD, uh, my medical degree at Tufts University in Boston following my undergrad training. And then spent some time in Boston and Boston has a really robust kind of research and clinical and outreach network when it comes to substance use and supporting patients through substance use. So I saw actually a lot of patients with both infections and opioid use disorder and other substance use disorders and really kind of became interested in the overlap of those chronic illnesses such as HIV and hepatitis C and kind of supporting patients as they navigate those illnesses as well as navigate their either active substance use or recovery. And so that's really kind of how I landed here. We invited Dr. Hodges to join us to discuss encouraging results from a pilot program to support patients receiving medication as part of their treatment for opioid use disorder. The impacts of the opioid epidemic have affected many lives, and the statistics confirming that are startling. Compared to the previous year, total drug overdose deaths in the U.S. rose 28% during the 12-month period ending in April 2021. That includes an increase in synthetic opioid deaths. So it's encouraging to hear that research from Dr. Hodges and colleagues suggests the use of a smartphone app called Hope may offer patients struggling with opioid abuse an additional lifeline to connect with care providers or peer support. Dr. Hodges, what can you tell us about the app and the positive results it has demonstrated among patients? Yeah, so, you know, I was really grateful to be folded into this project. It's really a 
highly interdisciplinary effort. And, you know, as an infectious disease physician in training, this project really offered an opportunity to learn a lot more about how outpatient treatment really goes on for opioid use disorder. And so I'm really grateful to my colleagues at the UVA Office-Based Opioid Treatment Clinic for really kind of giving us that education as we went through this process of both developing the smartphone app, Hope, as well as implementing it in a trial. It's really a small pilot study. And so what I can say is, you know, the goal of this app was really to design it around direct patient input and really try to align as best as we could with the priorities and the real goals of real patients in this clinic and in this environment and try to understand how we can best meet their needs. And so this isn't something where we you know, delivered sort of a pre-set up app and kind of hope for the best. It's really taking what we've learned about developing smartphone apps for chronic illnesses and in some ways kind of resetting for this population and saying, what are really the barriers for this population and how can we help and how can we empower people to really take control of their own recovery as much as we can and how can we help providers you know, do the same? So I think that that's really where we started. And, you know, after piloting, so once we developed the app, which was really done through a series of pretty rigorous interviews and qualitative study to understand those barriers and understand those needs, we did a series of user testing with real patients and kind of finalized the app. It was named really based off patient input. So HOPE stands for Heal, Overcome, Persist, Endure. And we piloted that app over a six-month period in a subset of 25 patients at the OBOT clinic at UVA. And that study happened coincidentally to span the early lockdown period in March of 2020 here in Virginia related to the COVID pandemic. And so that was an additional period of really increased barriers. So some things that we heard about included really just a significant exacerbation of social isolation, of mental health struggles and battles, a loss of connection with providers regularly during the lockdown when routine visits for primary care and other comorbidities were often canceled, and then financial strains related to the pandemic, which really kind of heightened issues related to transportation and seeking care in person. And so this actually offered us kind of a, a natural way to understand how we might help people with those kind of exacerbated issues using this smartphone app. And as you mentioned, it's, it's a highly multi-feature smartphone app. So it uh, incorporates features related to lowering the barrier to communicating with providers outside the EMR with a direct messaging feature that's secure and private within the interface of the app. There's also a, a community messaging feature which provides an opportunity for anonymous and secure peer messaging between patients who are seen at the clinic and in this case within the pilot study. And then some additional features are related to self-monitoring. So being able to kind of monitor, and this is really for the patient use, it's not for providers to be looking at, but whether there, you know, there are cravings, triggers for using, relapse, and then also whether, you know, patients are taking medications regularly and there are some reminders for taking medications, including their suboxone. And what we really found over the study period was, first of all, we looked at how many of these patients actually stuck with us and were able to really 
stay in treatment given all of their barriers. And in a group that was really particularly identified to have high risk factors for disengagement in care, so you know, different socio and psychosocial reasons for disengaging in care or a particularly significant history of overdose or active substance use despite multiple attempts to undergo outpatient treatment. Even with all of those risk factors present, at least one or more in our selected pilot cohort, we found that actually over half of the pilot cohort were still attending visits in addition to using the app at six months, which was, you know, really encouraging for us in a group that, you know, it would not be unreasonable to expect that many, if not all of these patients could potentially have been off to care earlier than that. And so um, that was really promising for us in terms of at least being able to see some ongoing engagement in a really critical time point for these patients. And then some of the other things that we noted are patients used at least one or more features every month. And so there was continuous usage of one or more features. Some of the features that perhaps we'd like to study in a larger cohort, like the community message board, you know, if you you look through our paper, you'll see that not as many patients use this. And I think part of the reason for that is despite really liking the feature when we user tested it, it takes a certain degree of momentum to get people chatting and opening up in a discussion, and it takes a certain amount of activity. And we tend to not see that as frequently in these smaller studies, so we very much like to study, you know, that being a desirable feature in testing. We'd really like to see what happens in a larger group. But, you know, despite all of this usage and desirable kind of retention that we did see um, in a relative sense, we also noted that There are inevitable barriers to care that the app really can't address without more flexible treatment models. So patients who reported difficulty with, you know, getting to the clinic in terms of the distance to the physical clinic to continue to adhere to treatment requirements. Traditional treatment requirements include going to a lab to get a urine drug screening while on treatment and in-person visits in some cases, you know, continue to be required. During the COVID pandemic, there was a little bit more flexibility about the visits themselves. But again, still a lot, a lot of ways to go in terms of these treatment requirements a little bit more flexible because patients who have those barriers to getting to clinic and having reliable transportation really had higher rates of loss to follow up even in this study when, when an app was available. And so, you know, I think a major takeaway for us is that, that an app like this is not a substitute for, for really kind of low barrier care and, and more flexible treatment models. And as you mentioned, the pilot program coincided with some of the early shutdowns during the COVID-19 pandemic. For context, it's important to note that data tells us hospital-based treatment for substance use disorders increased during the pandemic as people dealt with emotional and mental challenges at a time of increased social isolation. This makes you wonder if additional weight should be given to the pilot program results showing a majority of patients in the pilot program continuing to receive medication support for their opioid use disorder. So in your view, Dr. Hodges, how, if at all, might these circumstances factor into the documented results? Yeah, you know, I think that it was really encouraging, you know, when we examined feature usage surrounding the lockdown period, you know, one of the major features we were able to do that with was the provider and patient messaging. And so, you know, we did see a bump in the, the mean per user activity, you know, between the first month before the lockdown really took place and then shortly after that. And I think it, you know, it speaks to two things. I think it 
it really kind of highlights the fact that there were significant increases in patient concerns, both logistically surrounding how are they going to continue treatment, but also in wanting some connection, you know, and, and, and this is what we suspect. We, we haven't rigorously studied the content itself, but, you know, we have this hypothesis that a lot of the kind of comorbidities, including mental illness, were really brought out in this period. And so this type of app really offers an opportunity to really try to tackle, you know, those problems in a flexible way, in a way that's really low barrier and that allows patients to to really open up to their providers and really kind of further the the provider-patient relationship in a way that is unique, I think, to this sort of intervention and really kind kind of forms a more creative and innovative way to create connections between patients and providers that's sort of different from the typical office model. And so I think being able to kind of observe those changes over the period of the lockdown when we implemented this pilot study is is really helpful, I think, in that way. You mentioned how the Hope app can help patients securely connect with care providers and how it features a message board where patients can interact with peers. What else can you tell us about the app and its functionality? which I gather is a cousin of another app developed at UVA Health to support HIV patients? Yes, it's a great question. So the original app that you're referencing, Positive Links, was also, you know, really designed to effectively work as a community health worker, essentially, to kind of really holistically support patients who are having to take a medication every day, you know, really for the rest of their lives in the case of HIV. And we saw a lot of similarities in the sense that patients are expected to adhere to often, you know, complicated medications that have their own burdens and side effects and are expected to continuously follow up in clinic and get labs. And, you know, over a very long period, you can understand how there are lots of barriers that would emerge that would make things difficult. And so what we really wanted to do was to kind of borrow the lessons that we learned from Positive Links and try to tailor this app for the, you know, probably shared barriers and shared benefits of a smartphone app that we could see across many different chronic illnesses, but also try to target more specifically, you know, what are some kind of modifiable things that we could do to the app to really tailor it for opioid use disorder. And, you know, we mentioned some of these features really when we tested specifically for opioid use disorder treatment, there were a lot of overlapping benefits. And so we we retained several of those features. So the community message board was the feature of positive links that we retained as well as the, the provider messaging feature. And then in addition to sort of added functionality to the self-monitoring features that we have built in, like medication reminders and appointment reminders. We had sort of check-ins of, you know, stress and mood, which are also present in positive links. But in hope, we had kind of these additional unique check-ins about, you know, offering encouragement to yourself and checking in with yourself about triggers and what are these triggers that, you know, really in real time, what, what are patients identifying as, you know, a trigger that might result in in relapse in substance use. And it, it really gives, you know, an opportunity for people to kind of take control of, you know, their own recovery process and really try to break down what's going on with them and understand, 
exactly what's causing them to either do a really great job and really flourish in their recovery or to at some point struggle. And having that ability to check in with yourself, I think, was something that was particularly unique to Hope and that we really enjoyed getting that feedback from patients that that was something that they wanted to see in the new app. And what are the next steps for this app? Are there plans to conduct additional pilot programs or to market it more broadly to patients and other healthcare providers? Yeah, so it's a great question. Really, what we'd like to see next is we'd like to study the app implemented in a larger group. You know, we'd, of course, love for this to be a generalizable intervention, and we want to see that, you know, it's taken up by a diverse, heterogeneous population that's struggling with opioid use disorder. And so we want to, you know, of course, include as many patients as we can in terms of gender and ethnicity and social circumstance to really get an understanding of how best we can grow and build the app to, to, to help best support people through recovery. And, and we'd also, you know, we'd like to test this app against usual care in a prospective manner because we really want to get a sense of does this actually really help improve or have an impact on clinically important outcomes as well. So we want people to use the app, we want people to like the app, but we also want to make sure that we're rigorously studying whether this app has actually the ability to improve morbidity and mortality related to their opioid use. So outcomes like relapse and opioid use or overdose in addition to medication adherence and retention and care. And then on top of that, we, you know, we'd like to see a little bit more, you know, of a breakdown of the mechanism of action of this app and how specifically can we measure why patients are benefiting from the app. And so, you know, one preliminary observation we had in our pilot study was that patients rated themselves on an assessment following participation in the app as more able to exercise self-control related to substance use after using the app. And so measures like this, we'd like to study in a larger group and see if we see the same effect. But we also want to see, you know, specifically what are the reasons for them measuring themselves as having more self-control and doing a little bit more qualitative work to understand exactly the how of this intervention and how does it exercise the effect that we see on clinical outcomes. And then finally, I think a huge part of supporting people with opioid use disorder, in addition to medication to support recovery, is also harm reduction and mitigating the harms of active substance use in patients who are continuing to use, you know, and having an understanding that we can do things to support people if they are not yet ready to discontinue active substance use. And so we would definitely like to explore, you know, rolling this sort of low barrier provider and patient supporting interface to providers in other treatment settings. So not just outpatient, you know, office-based treatment programs, but also to different providers who provide harm reduction services in other settings. And we'd love to see how we can help patients through that process as well. Thank you again for sharing some time with us today, Dr. Hodges. To close, I have two final personal questions for you to give our audience a sense of who you are beyond the work you do. To keep things interesting, we're going to have you choose from a list of 10 mystery questions. So please pick two numbers between 1 and 10, and we will ask you questions from the corresponding list. Great. Okay. Um, I will pick 3 and 8. Uh, number 3. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received, and why does it stick with you? 
Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think I've gotten a lot of advice throughout my career related to being a physician. And as like sort of generic as it sounds, I think something that's always stuck with me is, you know, you'll have a lot of opportunities to make choices and, you know, a lot that you have to consider about a career and sort of a vocation. And I think uh, a lot of things play into that. So for physicians, we have to think about what kind of impact we want to have. We have to think about how we want to spend our time day to day. And we have to think about our families. We have to think about financial compensation. So there's just so many things that you can think about when you're forming this career. And the most important thing really, I think, is to do what drives you and to do it with people that, you know, you really relate to and are your people. And I think I've been able to find people who are really passionate about, you know, patients who are really marginalized and stigmatized and really focused on doing everything we can to support them in the same way we would support any other patient. And I think the simple fact that I found those people in the type of research and the type of clinical care that I'm doing has really carried me through all kinds of ups and downs related to my career and highs and lows. And I would, you know, always encourage anyone who's looking uh, to find out what career works for them to just remember that you need to do what drives you and you need to to do it with people that, that care about the things that you care about. Number eight is tell me one memory from your life that whenever you think of it, it makes you smile. Oh my gosh. I think this is probably also sort of a generic answer, but I just had my daughter last year. We're getting close to her first birthday. Her name is Maya. And, you know, I think it's pretty hard for me to resist smiling when I think about uh, having her and seeing her for the first time. And even at a few days old, getting a sense of her personality and she's very feisty and she makes herself known in terms of what she wants and she's been doing that since the day she was born and and it always makes me laugh to think about that well that brings us to the close of another episode of the virginia hospital and healthcare association's patients come first podcast if you like what you heard please make sure to leave us a five-star review on apple Podcasts and subscribe so you know when new episodes are released and we want to once again thank our guest dr jacqueline hodges for joining us today so thank you thanks so much for having me